Welcome to this latest episode of the Chambridge podcast. Today we have our first head of state or former head of state, uh, Tony Abbott, who served as the 28th Prime Minister of Australia from 2013 to 15. Welcome, Tony. Thanks, Cal. So, Tony, six months ago, you were here uh, for another conference, a geopolitical summit, about two weeks before the war in Russia. And during this, you told a very interesting anecdote about a meeting with Vladimir Putin. And, uh, and I was wondering if you could tell that again, because I have a question about that. Is that your view about or what he said about blood and soil? Uh, I'm wondering if that's still his motivation. And indeed, does the West understand this? Happy to tell the story. And I think uh, that... Uh his way of thinking is radically different from ours and uh, maybe this uh, true story from my time as Prime Minister might help illustrate it. Um, Many of your listeners would remember the shoot-down of MH17 on the 17th of July 2014. Uh, There were 38 Australians on board and uh, naturally um, I wanted to ensure that justice was done Uh, for them and their families. And so I'd promised uh, to shirt front, which is an an Australian sporting term, denoting a very, very rough tackle, I'd promised to shirt front Vladimir Putin about this atrocity where a Russian missile battery crossed into Ukraine, uh, shot down this civilian jetliner and then went back into Russia. So uh, on the fringes of the 2014 APEC summit in Beijing, I said, look, Vladimir, It's time for us to talk. Um, We had uh, one of those uh, pull-aside meetings where I said, uh, it's clear what happened. Uh, Your missile battery went into another country, uh, destroyed the jetliner, 38 Australians die. Um, You should apologise and pay compensation to the families at the very least. Anyway, he gave me a long rant through an interpreter Uh, that uh, it was uh, Ukrainian provocateurs who'd shot down the plane. Uh, And in any event, the Ukrainians were all fascists and Ukraine had no right to exist. And I said, look, I get the Mother Russia stuff. I've read my Solzhenitsyn. I know about Kiev and Rus. Uh, But still, the Ukrainians surely have a right to look west if they choose rather than being forced uh, to, to keep looking east. And again, I got this long rant through an interpreter Uh, about the Ukrainians being fascists and Ukraine having no right to exist. Anyway, at that point, the bells went and we had to go into the main conference and he was walking a little in front of me and all of a sudden he turned, physically grabbed me uh, and he's quite a small man. He he shook me and he said, and I'm trying to do justice to his accent, he said, you are not a native Australian. I am a native Russian. And he threw me away, literally. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell did this extraordinary outburst mean? And the only interpretation that I can put on it, I did then and I do to this day, he was trying to tell me that I did not understand the mystical connection that a Russian has with the blood and soil of Russia. Um, Someone from an a settler society, an immigrant country like Australia, just doesn't get this mystical link uh, that a Russian leader has to all the lands of Russia, including, as he obviously thinks, uh, the Ukraine. So look, from that day to this, 
Uh, it's been absolutely crystal clear to me uh, that this guy has been on a mission to recreate the Russia of Peter the Great. And that's why the war in Ukraine matters so much, not just to the 40 million Ukrainians, uh, because if he succeeds in snuffing out the freedom and independence of Ukraine, if Ukraine becomes once more little Russia uh, to Muscovy's big Russia, um, Poland, Moldova, uh, Georgia, uh, the Baltic states, everything that was once part of Peter the Great's Russia is, uh, is frankly in the firing line. And that would be a catastrophe, obviously, uh, for the people of those countries, but it would be a catastrophe for the wider world. Um, uh, the current uh, war in Ukraine is disastrous for everyone, uh, but imagine how much worse it would be if it was extended. Do you feel that um, this view you've articulated, or this, based on an experience you had dealing with Putin personally, do you think that view is understood or that motivation is understood by other leaders in, in the West? I think democratic leaders find it very difficult to get on the wavelength of dictators. Um, in a democracy, you are 24-7 responsive to your voters and voters always focus on bread and butter issues. They want more jobs, they want higher pay, they want better roads, they want better schools, they want better hospitals. And sure, voters understand, uh, if they're well-led, that yes, um, you've got to have uh, strong armed forces and yes, uh, you've got to uh, do the right thing by other countries and all the rest of it. But in the end, Voters are overwhelmingly preoccupied with making their own lives better uh, and hoping that their kids' lives will be better still. So that's your concern. But uh, a dictator doesn't have to worry about that at all. Uh, I mean, Putin does not have to worry about public opinion in the same way that uh, the British Prime Minister or the American President uh, or the French, even the French President has to worry. And... and because our day-to-day -day concerns are so down to earth, um, the focus, the the intensity of dictators' uh, national aggrandizement visions are sometimes hard for us to get. But but Putin is completely focused on doing what he can to restore Greater Russia, just like. Xi Jinping is completely focused on doing whatever he can to overcome the so-called century of humiliation, um, to stamp communist control completely uh, on, uh, on China and, if possible, to extend it to Taiwan and other places as well. So we've just got to understand that their way of thinking is not ours. And while we might think their way of thinking is mad, if you accept their lights, it might be evil, but it's certainly not mad. Tony, since I believe you're the only uh, guest we've had who has not only spoken uh, to uh, Putin, but also to Xi, since you mentioned him, and before we move on to some of the more ide ideological analysis, I'm curious if you could share your impressions of, uh, of Xi as, as a man, as a, as a person. Happy to, David. Look, uh, I think my time as prime minister coincided with the high tide of good relations between not just Australia and China, but uh, 
China and the wider world more generally. Um, when I was Prime Minister in 2014, uh, we concluded the uh, free trade deal with China, which was the first trade deal China had done with another G20 country. Um, we uh, joined, albeit after some pretty tough negotiating and some changes to the Chinese position, we joined the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which was essentially a Chinese uh, initiative. Um, Xi Jinping paid a state visit to Australia at the conclusion of the G20 meeting in Brisbane. And he said in our parliament, and this is the official Chinese translation, he said that China would be fully democratic by mid-century. Now, I know what they mean by democracy and what we mean by democracy is not anywhere near the same. But the fact that he chose to use that language in the English version of his speech I thought was very significant and we had a dinner that night in the Great Hall that must have had a thousand people and it felt more like uh, a political party rally if you like than than a, a formal state dinner. Uh, people were coming up and slapping Xi Jinping on the back and uh, telling him how wonderful he was and he appeared through the interpreter to be responding in the sort of way that a democratic politician would at a at a at a at a community event um, warmly, so it really was uh, a pretty amazing time. But um, within a few months, he was turning reefs and caves in the South China Sea into military bases. Uh, within a couple of years, he was imposing the social credit system on his own people. Uh, imprisoning and terrorising senior business leaders. Then, of course, we had the internment of up to a million Uyghurs, the crushing of Hong Kong, uh, the bullying of India even, uh, and, of course, the increasingly uh, bellicose threats against Taiwan. So um, someone who I thought at the time, albeit through an interpreter, and that's always... It's like talking to someone behind a mask... Uh, I thought he was someone that we could do business with, uh, but plainly, um, that was in the hide and bide period. Um, he made a judgment that China was sufficiently strong to no longer have to hide its strength and bide its time. What we are now faced with is uh, a very, very uh, assertive, uh, belligerent even aggressive China, and uh, um, that spells big trouble, uh, big, big trouble. I mean, what we are now in um, is a global contest uh, for leadership uh, between the United States and the democracies and between China and its various allies and agents of convenience, uh, partners of convenience, and um, we have to be as strong and as resolute in this new Cold War as we were in the last. Can I just ask, with this increasing um, aggression or assertiveness of China in the world, how much of that do you think is an expression or an, or an inevitability of its political economic growth uh, systemic uh, or systemic um, effect, I suppose? Or how much of it is it simply an expression of Xi's personality? Well, again, it's a very good question and, and we will endlessly debate these sorts of issues, Cal, but uh, I, I think that uh, 
you know, Mao was one sort of Marxist, Deng Xiaoping was a different sort of Marxist, and Xi Jinping is a different sort again, and more reminiscent of Mao than of than of Deng. Now, uh, uh, different people can have the same fundamental philosophy, uh, can be products of the same underlying culture, and yet be quite different. I mean, every pope has been a sincere Catholic, and yet different popes have been very different in the way they've run the church. Although and- some might even question that. But, uh- <laughs> Is the Pope a Catholic? Yes. Once it was, if you like, a truism, and now it is a que- genuine question, perhaps. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so 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 look, um, I'm not saying that uh, she's immediate predecessors weren't real Marxists, and he is. Uh, I'm not saying that they were internationalists as opposed to chauvinists, and he is a chauvinist. But but uh, what we've seen in she is a very strong marriage of Marxism-Leninism with um, uh, Middle Kingdom exceptionalism. Uh, and that means he's a, a particularly acute challenge, not just for his neighbours, but for the wider world. Just following on from that, um, some argue, I, I'm quite good friends with Rowan Callick, uh-huh. who you probably know I very know, well. Yeah. And Rowan told me recently that he thinks China might have reached peak growth, that actually the China miracle might be coming to an end. Business costs are going up, plus the response to COVID, and now you've got protests in China. Maybe China's not as strong as it seems to project itself. That's a a very fair point, and Rowan may well be right, but uh, peaking dictatorships... um, Insecure peaking dictatorships are uh, perhaps at their at their most dangerous, uh, because uh, it may well be that he thinks that it's now or never. Um, I mean, I, I've heard a lot of American military analysts say, "Well, there'll be no attack on Taiwan for the next five years because China needs to improve its anti-submarine and its amphibious capacity." But uh, uh, if you worry that in that five-year period um, you might be beset with domestic difficulties, uh, that the Taiwanese might increase their capabilities uh, in ways that you can't match, well, you might decide, uh, well, it's now or never. Uh, so, So, look... I, I think we've got a real challenge on our hands. And as I said, I, I think the best way uh, to preserve what is likely to be an uneasy peace for some period of time is not by being weak and acquiescent, but by being strong and determined. One uh, lamentable thing that's occurred between your last visit to Budapest and this is the assassination of uh, the late Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, uh, whom I believe you were rather close with. And I, I'm curious if you could say a few words about his understanding of uh, relations with China and how that has informed or agrees, disagrees with your own perceptions. Another very good question, David. Look, uh, I first met uh, uh, Shinzo Abe in 2010 uh, when I was on an opposition leader's trip to Japan. And what 
surprised me, uh, indeed took me aback a little, even then, was how incredibly apprehensive the Japanese establishment was about China's uh, rapid economic growth. Uh, because while we had had our anxieties about China uh, in the early communist years, um, from the 1980s on, uh, Australia had done very well uh, out of helping to supply the Chinese economic miracle with coal and with gas and with iron ore and later on more sophisticated agricultural products, etc. So I was a little taken aback by the apprehensiveness of the Chi Japanese establishment generally about China back then. But I suppose being closer geographically and perhaps culturally, uh, the Japanese had a much clearer and better understanding of what was really going on in China than we did. They had a much clearer and better understanding, I suppose, of that Middle Kingdom mindset uh, uh, than we did. Um, and uh, Shinzo Abe was, um, I think, uh, a really transformative leader, not just for his own country but for the wider world because only Abe could have got the Indians to come down off the fence, as it were, uh, to abandon decades of supposed non-alignment and, if you like, uh, uh, subcontinental focus um, to join the Quad. Um, only an Asian leader, a fellow Asian leader, I think was going to get an Indian prime minister into an association with um, the United States and to a lesser extent Australia. And given that I think the Quad is probably the most significant strategic development since the formation of NATO, um, I think we've got to give enormous credit first to Abe uh, for persisting with the Quad and second to Modi uh, for being magnanimous enough to appreciate that India's uh, liberal pluralist uh, democratic reality uh, transcended any resentment that there might be, any lingering resentment that there might be to Western countries for for the period of colonialism and so on. So, so, so Abe, not only a wonderful human being, I mean, he was the sort of person who uh, was absolutely straight with you. Um, you know, that wonderful advice... Uh, that every father should give to every son, say what you mean and do what you say. Well, uh, Abe was one of those very rare politicians who seemed to live that dictum to uh, say what you mean and do what you say. And I found him a, a wonderful partner when, when I was Prime Minister uh, at the same time as he was. I wonder if um, the, the other, you know, the parallel uh, development that... Um, Australia put a lot of credence in, but now seems somewhat um, uh, hedging its bets on China is the ASEAN relationship. And I wonder what you thought was happening in Indonesia, Singapore and Southeast Asia generally. Don't let anyone tell you that the ASEAN countries are uh, uh, kind of even-handed as between China and the United States. Uh, ASEAN desperately wants the United States to stay fully engaged with, uh, with, uh, with the Western Pacific and with Southeast Asia. 
because uh, they're under no illusions about China. Um, they realise that uh, um, everything China does is done with strategic intent, um, whether it's um, Belt and Road initiatives, uh, whether it's trade deals, uh, whether it's supposedly humanitarian assistance, it's, et cetera. It's all done with strategic intent. Uh, that's the nature of the, of the, as I said, Marxist-Leninist stroke Middle Kingdom uh, mindset in Beijing. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I think that all of those countries take a, a realist approach, if you like. Um, they uh, don't want to make themselves uh, targets. Uh, they appreciate that uh, they might well be targets, but they don't want to do anything to put their heads up above the parapets. So I think we can uh, expect uh, uh, ASEAN uh, to be... Uh, uh, well, I don't think we can expect ASEAN to be forward-leaning when it comes to China. So just one other on, on that area. So most more recently, when I was recently in Australia, um, there was a huge concern about the way in which China was moving into what used to be called Australia's own backyard in, in, in the Pacific, um, with both Fiji and the Solomon Islands, I think, being... Um, recipients of Belt and Road money. Um, do you think Australia's been sort of incompetent in that area? I think we've been a bit neglectful. I think for a long time, Australian leaders at every level, business, uh, governmental, political, um, tended to uh, focus on uh, bigger places than smaller places. Uh, we for understandable, if regrettable reasons, found London more fascinating than Port Moresby, uh, found Washington more interesting than Suva. Uh, um, 50 years ago, uh, Australian companies like Burns Phillip uh, dominated the economies of places like uh, Fiji and the Solomon Islands, and that's no longer the case. Uh, uh, 50 years ago, there were large Australian expatriate communities in all of these places. That's much less so uh, than it was. That said, through sport uh, and through education uh, and through tourism, there's still vast Australian soft power uh, in these areas. But I do think that at a governmental level and at a, at a, at a business level, uh, we do need to put a lot more effort into our own backyard than uh, we maybe have. I mean, the truth is that Australia is the South Pacific superpower. Uh, um, in London, Washington, Tokyo, Beijing, uh, we are just a middle power, a significant one, uh, but a middle power nonetheless, whereas we are the big man in Port Moresby and in Suva uh, and in Wellington and places like that, and we need to act accordingly. I certainly would want all of the Pacific countries to think of Australia as their partner of choice. I hope that they would know from repeated experience that uh, whatever we do in their countries and with their countries, we do with an abundance of goodwill with no strings attached, uh, 
seeking nothing in return other than, I suppose, uh, um, the friendship that we've always enjoyed. And, and certainly um, um, uh, <laughs> I think any country in the South Pacific uh, that thinks it can do a good deal with China is making a dreadful mistake. So six months ago, or maybe eight months ago now, uh, you, in February of 2022, you came to Budapest and you gave a talk on the risks of a war between Russia and Ukraine, and then a war broke out two weeks later. You've just today given a talk on uh, particularly China and Taiwan. So I hope your talks aren't an augury of things to come. But the, but, um, but the question I have for you is, you also seem to be in quite an unusual position as the Prime Minister of Australia from 2013 to 15, because you will have dealt, as you said, with the high tide of China relations, mm -hmm. but also dealt with the crisis where the Australians were killed in the air crash mm -hmm. over Ukraine. And you talked about your experience of Vladimir Putin talking about blood and soil. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I wonder, given your experience and the fact you've really reflected on that statement and you know China quite well, do you see any parallels between Russia's attitudes towards Ukraine and China's attitudes towards Taiwan in the context of you talk about China's strategic intent, obviously has many intents. One central bit of their foreign policy is the reclamation of, of, uh, of Taiwan. And so is that something that needs to be understood with the same understanding of, of the cultural frame of reference the Chinese have in the same way as you say we need to understand the Russians? Do you see basically parallels? Is there blood and soil as a central issue of Chinese policy in a way we don't understand. The commonality between Russia and China is that neither of them like uh, the product of their history. Uh, they think recent history has been dreadfully unfair to them and has not adequately acknowledged their greatness uh, and their destiny uh, and they want that change. And of course, any democratic politician who started talking about national destiny and national greatness would immediately lose office, uh, would be mocked to scorn. But in dictatorships, um, you don't have to worry about bread and butter concerns. You don't have to worry about the fact that um, uh, most people are much more worried about what happens uh, in their neighbourhood uh, than some kind of dream of national self-aggrandizement. So, so, look... Um, I think it's important to understand two things. First of all, this claim uh, that Taiwan is somehow an integral part of China uh, it has no strong foundation. Uh, in fact, uh, Taiwan was an offshore island inhabited by um, people who are quite close to the Pacific Islanders uh, until... In the 1600s, I think it was the Dutch and the Portuguese uh, who came to Taiwan. Um, they were eventually uh, turfed out by one of the Manchu emperors um, in the late 1600s. Uh, and, and from that time on, there was a degree of settlement uh, by Chinese people in Taiwan. But it was a quasi-independent place um, What's the old saying? Uh, the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. Uh, in this case, the sea was wide and the mountains were high and the emperor is far away. It was also part of Japan for a while. Well, well the, the, the Beijing government uh, established effective control over Taiwan in the 1880s 
It lasted for 10 years, uh, and then Taiwan was ceded to Japan after the Sino-Japanese War of 1895. Japan ruled Taiwan, initially with some brutality, but subsequently with a degree of, I gather, benevolence, because the Taiwanese uh, feel quite kindly towards the Japanese now. Um, in 1945, it reverted uh, to Chinese rule under the nationalists. Um, and of course, after 1949, uh, Shang Kai-shek put his government into Taiwan and um, it's, it's never been ruled by, by communist China um, and it's rarely been ruled from Beijing. And uh, the, China, the Taiwanese don't feel particularly benevolent towards Chiang Kai-shek. If there's any Chinese leader that they look to, it's Sun Yat-sen. Um, it's certainly not Chiang Kai-shek. It's certainly not Mao Zedong, and it's certainly not Xi Jinping. So, so I think that the Chinese claims over Taiwan are extremely tenuous. Um, and in any event, Taiwan has been practically independent of China for 70-odd years. There is not the slightest indication uh, that the Taiwanese people wish to be part uh, of communist China. And no one should force them, and they certainly should not be forcibly incorporated into this brutal dictatorship. And, and if um, 25 million people living on their own island uh, are uh, regarded as fair game uh, for a place like China, um, what hope is there for small countries in a difficult and dangerous world? Follow-up to that is, I mean, it seems to be, and as much as we're seeing China trying to reclaim Taiwan, there does seem to be a general trend in the world that certainly Western democracies seem to have been quite naive about the influence China's had over them. And uh, I remember in 1992, James Carville had this statement that the slogan for Bill Clinton's campaign, which was, it's the economy, stupid. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that attitude of privileging the economy of everything else could end up being the epitaph for the West, mm -hmm. because it seems to be as long as we think the economy is, uh, is the most important thing, then we will always be subject to, to China's influence for economic reasons. And I'm wondering, do you see enough being done or enough recognition being shown within liberal democracies of the risk of China to the West, but also the risk China poses to the so-called global South in terms of debt traps and so on. Is there enough real awareness of this sort of problem? Well, as I said, I, I think we have to appreciate that um, for a whole host of reasons, Marxism, Leninism amongst them, China does everything with strategic intent. I think we just have to appreciate that. Now, I'm not saying that we should gratuitously antagonize China. I'm not saying that we should think ill of the Chinese people for a second, not saying that for a second. Um, they are the real victims of the government in Beijing. Um, but I do think that for prudential reasons, uh, by all means, keep trading with China, uh, but we have to ensure that um, when it comes to strategically rare and important materials, we're very careful about um, what we uh, trade with China. Uh, when it comes to um, allowing Chinese students uh, uh, to access our intellectual property, particularly in the hard sciences, I think we have to be extremely careful. When it comes to having Chinese intermediate goods 
in our critical supply chains, I have I think we have to be extremely careful because, um, as Australia has found, uh, the Chinese will turn all of this on and off like a tap uh, when it serves their purposes, and um, uh, we uh, we do not want to be reliant on a regime uh, that wishes to dominate us and will use every lever it can to bring that about. I have one final question for you, Tony. Um, and uh, it's just that uh, we've got two Brits at the table here, David Martin-Jones and myself. Uh, when you were Prime Minister, you oversaw the implementation of the uh, Operation Sovereign Borders in Australia, which was an effort to halt illegal boat immigration to Australia, which had spiked from about 160 people in 2008 to over 20,000 in 2013. And in Britain over the last two years, we've also seen a, a dramatic rise in boat immigration or illegal boat immigration, whatever we want to call it. Um, as someone who spearheaded a project then to deal with that in Australia, what is your view on the UK situation? And do you have any advice, lessons learned from it, challenges that we will encounter uh, or, or things that we should try and do? Well, Cal, you've got to ensure that people who arrive illegally by boat don't get to stay because if they do get to stay, they'll keep coming in ever-increasing numbers. And A, that's uh, an affront to a sovereign country, and B, it can easily become a humanitarian disaster as these boats sink uh, in rough conditions. So you can't let people who arrive illegally by boat stay. That means two things. First of all, uh, wherever possible, you've got to stop or turn around the illegal boats. And second, uh, if people arrive, um, they've got to be sent somewhere else. Now, uh, uh, I was amazed that the UK Parliament didn't rapidly pass legislation uh, to uh, remove the jurisdiction of that European court that prevented the Rwanda um, airlift. Um, frankly... Um, European Court of Human Rights. Yeah, frankly... Uh, um, there are British overseas territories, uh, perhaps Ascension Island or somewhere like that, uh, that could be used as a, as a holding facility for uh, people who uh, come illegally by boat. And look, um, I, I think the French have, uh, have acted uh, disgracefully in not stamping out this trade and in not accepting that... Uh, um, people have no right to move illegally um, from Britain to France um, and that they bear a share of blame and therefore should shoulder some responsibility. So, so look, uh, um, of course, there are all these uh, uh, bleeding heart lawyers and, um, and, and others who will say, oh, uh, if they come, they must be allowed to stay. Uh, but 99% of these people are economic migrants. Uh, and even if they might have genuine fears of persecution uh, in their original country, they've moved through various safe countries before they've ended up in Britain. And frankly, once you move beyond uh, your first place of refuge, you are no longer a refugee. Uh, and if the law needs to be changed to make that clear, well, let's change it. Tony Abbott, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Carol.